Okay, Matt, we're on. Hi, this is Michael Waits, and welcome back to the Social Innovation Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Matthew Friedman, the founder and the CEO of the Mekong Club. Matt, thank you so much for coming back on the show. The last time you were here, I think it was in April, and it's really great to have you back. I remember back then saying, we have to have you back on the show. So I'm glad you've taken the time to do this. Well, thanks for inviting me. I'm really pleased to be back here again. How have you been, by the way? I'm good. I'm good. Like everybody else, I'm adjusting to the so-called new normal, whatever that is. Uh, New normal seems to change over time. A little bit of cabin fever here in Hong Kong. But other than that, I can't complain. It's really strange. You know, I did a podcast for my InsurTech podcast in April of 2020. It may have been in May. We talked about, oh, the new normal, but this is going to be over soon once everybody adjusts to it. And I feel like we're less and less close to being out of this thing. I know pandemics do end. But the one thing that I do think is true about this, it's definitely true for me, is I think it's given a lot of people a lot of time to reflect. And, you Mm -hmm. know, I was thinking about this a lot as I was preparing for this call with you. You know, I started doing a social innovation podcast, I don't know, two years ago, maybe more. And to be fair, I didn't really know much about this space. And I feel like the ESG philosophy is kind of moving in your direction. And I I just want to finish this thought for a second. Mm -hmm. I have this thing that I say that like everyone's an overnight success 10 years later. Yeah. (laughs) Right. And obviously you've been at this a lot longer than 10 years. So Mm -hmm. to me, it's just sort of a metaphorical phrase where like at some point Mm -hmm. the world catches up to what the right thing to do is. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like that's happening with you? I, I absolutely, absolutely. You know, I mean, just to look at ESG for an example, um, and I'll give you my very simple kind of view on corporate social responsibility that led into ESG. Fair enough. Corporate social responsibility was supposed to be what ESG was, in that companies were going to have an office and they were going to respond to the world's questions related to, you know, what are you doing to interface with the planet, communities, workers, and so forth. But it went off in a weird direction. Yeah. They basically said, okay, well, what we're going to do is we're going to support education and disability and various other things. So we're doing good. We're a good organization. We don't have to talk about all those other things, but let's look at all the good things that we're doing. So a lot of organizations went in that direction. What ESG does is basically says, we want to measure this relationship between you and the planet and communities and workers and so forth. Right. And initially it was voluntary, but I don't think it's going to be anymore. The expectation is that the three things that companies have been basing their reason for being, you know, profit, growth, and prestige, you have another element, which is purpose. Are you doing right by the world? So as ESG continues to grow, partly because of the COVID situation where some companies stepped up and got involved, some didn't, people were asking, why aren't you getting involved? Why aren't you helping? I think it's going to be something on steroids in the next couple of years because everyone's talking about it. And it offers that opportunity of measuring in an objective way where companies are. It's a good thing. I think I told you this the last time we talked. There's a company that I deal with every now and then that has built all this technology to help companies measure. And I think you and I are at a different stage. And I think part of it is because you've just been at this longer than I am. I'm serious about this. Like we were joking a little bit before we started recording. You're like, you can't annoy me because I'm too focused on the things that I really care about. I can still be annoyed. So let me be the cynic here. And maybe you can be the person who's past the cynicism and into the more reality You know, I always looked at CSR, and I don't want to put anybody down, right? It's kind of a marketing tool for companies. I think it did kind of go Mm -hmm. off in the wrong direction. That's my opinion. You don't have to agree with me. I do agree. And I 
And I think at some point it was hard to measure, and that was one of the reasons why. You could say, well, we put $75 million into this or $25 million into that. But to be fair, if you're writing it off your taxes, I, I'm not impressed. Hmm. But what's happening now in the ESG space, and I want my cynicism to go away because I want to be happier about these types of things. But people are saying, yeah, that's great. But actually, on a measured basis, you're not really accomplishing that much. And I think that that's why that things are moving closer to the right direction because now those things can be measured. Yeah, I mean, a couple of things have to happen for it to really get to a point where it achieves the greatness that it can. Number one, there has to be more standardization. There's a number of different standards that are out there. We need to just figure out what are the 50 questions that you ask across that everyone uses. And then if the other standards wanna have variations on that, fine, but there should be some standard. The second thing we're seeing is that uh, governments are getting interested in this. If a company says that they're green, they have to demonstrate they're green. You know, you can't just why a greenwash is the term that is often used. Right. I think that's a good thing because what it will do is offer an objective way for people to really look at companies from the standpoint, are, are they doing the right thing? Are they doing enough? Uh, that transparency is important. And this is also, as we know, very much related to investments. The funds that focus on ESG, as uh, companies that are doing the right thing are outperforming significantly companies that have not looked at that. So the expectation now is that investors will want this, consumers will want this, businesses will expect that this is supposed to be in place. And we're seeing a lot of rebranding taking place. Companies rebranding to say, we see this writing on the wall and we're gonna get ahead of it. And those companies are gonna have a significant advantage, I think over time. I'm really happy, actually, that you mentioned the investment space. I had Paul Arkon, who was recently hired by Gobi Ventures, to literally infuse ESG into everything that they did. And Gobi Partners is not new. It's been around for a while. But they're realizing, just like every other investor, when they look at their portfolio, wait a second, if it has an ESG component in it, it's going to actually make us more money. Yeah. There was one of the big four accounting companies that it was hiring 100,000 people to focus on ESG and setting aside $12 billion. We're really talking, as this was publicly in the newspaper recently, it is the new wave of what business can and should be over time. It's, it's a really significant change and one that I feel like, as you described, historically, sometimes we think uh, things take a long time. Maybe it took a long time to get to where we are now, but we're at the right place. We're going in the right direction with the right tool. That really is where we need to be. Let's talk about some of the problems that we're actually trying to solve. The real stuff where when you look at the world, the stuff that we're trying to get to. Okay, people dying from pollution, 5.5 million. People without clean water, 783 million. People going hungry every day, about 795 million. Jesus. Children in forced labor, 168 million. Girls out of school, 130 million. And add to that all the community issues, drug abuse, homelessness, you know, unemployment, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The interesting thing about all of these is that with all of the government, United Nations and NGO people combined, we're not even hitting about 10% of what we need to do in order to address this. And the reason for that is that there are not enough do-gooders out there and enough resources to be able to make a significant difference. In my own sector, modern slavery, right. there are estimated to be 40 million people. And out of that last year, we helped 108,000, which is 0.2%, right. not even a half percent. 
So part of what I am concerned about with the world is that if we expect those small number of people who are paid to do this to make a real difference in the world, it's not going to happen. We all have to step up and get involved somehow. Yeah, I mean, I guess this is where my cynicism comes in. And that is, I remember the conversation we had, and I remember those numbers. I had 100,000 and 40 million in my head, right? But obviously, you remember this in more detail than I do. And I remember you saying, like, it's just so hard to compete with the number of resources that we have to try to fix this, with the resources that are putting into it, and also the money that gets made coming out of it to do that. I guess my question really is, how do we change our mindset for everybody, right? Because if there are seven point something billion people on the planet, if we can get more people involved just on like a day-to-day incremental basis. I know that NGOs are trying to do great things. I see the, you know, SDGs from the United Nations. I, I watch all this stuff. I pay really close attention. But it feels like until everybody takes a vested interest in it, like until your water gets dirty and you get dysentery or you get diarrhea, you're not really going to care kind of thing. But you should anyway because you don't know when that's going to happen. You know, it's interesting. If I do a talk in front of 100 people, yeah, I'll get 10 people come up to me afterwards and say, oh, my gosh, when I hear about modern slavery, I just, my heart bleeds. I have to do something. I can't help myself. The other 90 people either have other causes or no causes at all. But, you know, the thing is, is that I did not select human trafficking as my cause. It selected me. And I say that for all people. We have something about our DNA that draws us to animal rights or human rights or the, uh, the climate or something else. So, for example, if I have an intern who's a global warming intern working in a modern slavery office, I'll eventually tell that person, you don't need to be here. Go to where your heart drives you. You know, and I've had to say that to people because we have to understand that we have to open ourselves up to the fact that we all have causes that we're interested in. Right. Some of them are global. A lot of them are community, you know, just cleaning up the beachfront or, you know, helping the elderly or ensuring that uh, education is provided to people who can't read. All those kind of things are there. We have to reach inside and figure out what is the cause that we are interested in. For me, the thing is like hunger. Yeah. It really is. I mean, I've been hungry. Mm. I don't talk about this a lot, but I've been hungry. And when I look at somebody who I know is hungry... And it doesn't matter how how many resources I've had in my life. I've been really wealthy. I've been really poor. And it didn't matter to me. I just give food away. And I never throw it away. And again, it's not heroic. It's not amazing. I'm not bragging. It's just that that's the thing that resonates with me. I get the other causes, right? And I think this is what you're trying to say. Like, I look around at climate change. It scares me crazily. I look at human slavery, and I just think that needs to be fixed. But I feel like the thing that I can do my part, where I can do my part, is with hunger. I buy water for people. I give food to people. I don't throw food away, all that kind of stuff. It's not enough for sure. But it is heroic. And that's the thing. We we have to find heroism as being the person who runs in front of a bus to save the child that walks into the street. For me, heroism is when a person does a selfless act of any kind with no anticipation of getting anything in return. You're not doing that because you're going to get anything back. You're doing it because it's the right thing to do and you feel good about it. I, I mean, I understand hunger too. When I was in college, I, I had so little money that there were times when I was waiting for a check to come and for two days I would eat potatoes or nothing at all. 
And that doesn't compare at all to the poverty of the people. It's it's a little sliver of that. But yeah. I do understand a little bit because it makes it personal. And when things are personal, we tend to gravitate more towards them. You made the point of if you don't have clean water, all of a sudden clean water becomes an important part of your life. Yeah. But part of the problem is that the world that we live in doesn't get us close enough to the real world where these things are happening. Unless you feel it, unless you expose yourself to it, you don't know that these problems are out there. And that's why I often encourage people who don't know what their cause is to go online and look at videos of, you know, poverty or, or hunger or homelessness or whatever it is that you're in, you think you might be interested in, watch them. And then eventually something will make your heart sing and you'll say, oh, that's it for me. How has your mindset about this changed? Now, I think a lot of people look at big institutions, non-government organizations, and just these big charities and try to say, they'll solve it. Like, I'll just go about my regular day-to-day -day business, but I'll just leave it to them to solve it. I won't do anything bad. Maybe I'll give some money to something, but I don't have time to do anything. Like, has your mindset changed about this? And it has over time. And, and let me give you a story. When I was working for the United Nations out of Thailand, yep. I would fly up to Hong Kong and talk to captains of industry about the issue of human trafficking and so forth. And I'd walk into an office and I'd see somebody who had huge salaries, lots of power, prestige. They had all of the things that we thought was the dream. <laughs> you know, life was completely taken over. But as I'm talking to them, they didn't seem very happy with life. And this happened over and over and over again. I just couldn't figure it out. Finally, I started saying to these people, you know, I'm, I'm in the United Nations system. I don't have anything close to what you have in terms of security and everything else. Why is it that you're not jumping up and down with glee that, you know, you got did the right thing and you, you got everything that life is supposed to offer? And their response was, well, you know, there seems to be a little bit of an emptiness or a lack of purpose in my life. Is this all there is? Some of them said, well, maybe I just need to make more money and it'll make me be happy. But <laughs> the reality is that there's an imbalance. Yeah. People take, 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 take. And, and the world is set up to be that way. It's not, it's not on them. It's on us. But they don't give anything back. There has to be a balance between the two. So when we dangled in front of some of these people, do you want to get involved in helping to address modern slavery? And they took the bait. Some of them went on to go and be do-gooder junkies. I could hardly keep up with them because all of a sudden that balance was there, that sense of purpose. They could make money, they could have a good life, but at the same time they could contribute to making the planet a better place. A lot of people have that yearning, that desire to want to do something, but they don't act on it. What we're trying to do is to tap into that and light a spark on that so that it explodes into them actually getting involved. Can you talk in a little bit of detail about how the Mekong Club, what this new thing is that you're working on, the, the Be a Hero project that you have, and what motivated the start for it and how it actually manifests itself in what you're trying to accomplish? Well, a lot of it came down to kind of the sense that as I was looking at the world around me as I was kind of talking to people who were always looking and saying, oh my gosh, Matt, you're doing all these wonderful things. I would always turn to them and say, you can do the same thing. And like, no, 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 I can't do the same. I'm too busy. Or, you know, what do I have to offer? All of these excuses were being added. So I decided to do a little bit of research. I interviewed hundreds and hundreds of people and I asked, what is it that prevents you from stepping up and getting involved? And a lot of the answers really just came down to a lack of validation. 
you know, if I do something, people don't really value what it is. I did that internship and I didn't really get th thanked. And so we decided to come up with what's called the Be the Hero campaign. You know, one of the things we did is we wrote a book and we developed training programs and so forth because what we realized is that there are a lot of people that had that sense of a lack of purpose and a hunger to do something, but they didn't know how to get started. And so what this research allowed us to do is to figure out that most people have a yearning, but there's a voice in their mind that kind of talks them out of it. Oh, I really want to help out, but too busy. I really want to help out, but you know, what if I join and I don't like it? That would be embarrassing. Right. Or what do I have to offer? You know, one of my youngest volunteers was nine years old. This girl, she saw a documentary I was in. I don't know how she got my email address. She was in Minnesota or something like that. And she contacted me and said, Matt, I'm nine years old and I saw you in a documentary. I want to help out. What do you need me to do? And I said, you're nine years old. She said, so what? I said, you're nine years old. She said, nine-year-olds are the new 16-year-olds. Give me a, a, something to do. I said, what do you think that you can do? She said, I'm great at finding things on the internet, anything you want. So I gave her a challenge. And she was better than my second year Yale Law student finding stuff on the internet. It was an inherent gift that she had. And part of what we try to do is to get people to use their gifts. If you're a singer, sing about stuff. If you're a dancer, do a dance interpretation of something. If you're a writer, write. If you're a public speaker, if you sell t-shirts well, then do that. Figure out what it is that you have to offer, but do something. So I often say to my audiences, if I could get you guys all to do one thing a year, and if 10 million people did one thing, that's 10 million heroic, compassionate gestures. That adds up. And that's the kind of approach that we're focusing on. There is, there is good in numbers. If we can just get people to do one thing and then another thing and another thing and have that be a part of their regular life. What is the output of the Be The Hero campaign? In other words, are you expecting to, because you can't go around. I remember you told me this story where, <laughs> I'll never forget this, and I'm going to get the numbers wrong, but just work with me here. You and your wife drove to 176 cities, 76 cities. I can't remember to talk to all these different people, right? But today you can't do that. Yeah, you know, we did uh, uh, a 70 consecutive day a road trip. I went to my wife and said, oh, great vacation. We're going to go across the United States. I'm going to do a few talks along the way. You know, you're going to go do it with me. It turned out to be 115 presentations in 27 cities. <laughs> and within the first three days, we came to realize how unsustainable this is. Right, right, you right. know, this was not a vacation, you know, getting to the location, making sure everything was okay and everything. So around Kansas City, we were close to divorce, we managed to get through it. and We ended strong and it, it made our marriage a lot better and so forth. But uh, the point is, you know, we got in front of a lot of people. We learned a lot from that process. There really is a yearning within people to want to do something. But nothing really in our society helps people through the process of figuring out how to go from that feeling to actually doing it. I don't know if I mentioned the word valiety to you last time we talked. Did not. Okay, so every once in a while I get in front of an audience and I go into a rant. I get into this, I forget that audience is there and I'm, I'm just pontificating and I'm getting really excited and I'm I'm really upset and and then I all of a sudden wake up oh uh, well this slide says and then I and then I go back to what I'm supposed to do and so afterwards I was feeling a little embarrassed standing up in the corner and somebody comes up to me and says your whole talk was about valiety I said what valiety haven't you ever heard of that I said no the meaning of valiety is a wish or inclination not strong enough to lead to action and that's what kind of drives much of the world. 
we have an intention to want to do something, but we don't get over the line. Now, I did a TED talk uh, where I talked about this, where, you know, you don't know about an issue, then you come to learn more about it, you start to care, you get right up to the line where you're about to act, and getting over that line is one of the hardest things ever. And advertising companies understand this. You know, if you've never had gone into a particular branded shop for clothes, all they want you to do is to cross over the threshold once and they've won. Right. It's getting people to make that change because a lot of people are change averse. What drives them to cross that line? In other words, what, because the validity you said is a wish that's not strong enough to lead to action. How do you get past the validity? And how do you, because you're obviously past it. I feel like to a certain extent, like I said, I go, I walk down the street, I buy myself lunch. I, there's a guy who's always there. I feed him. So I'm kind of past it, not as far past it as you are, but I'm getting there. But the point is, how do you get some people who just walk past there to get to the numbers that are higher? Like you said, if you get 10 million people to do it, if you get 100 million people to do it, the world actually does change. We need to inspire people. I mean, I, I do 175 talks a year and I try to inspire people. You know, the inspiration is, is not part of our daily diet. And, you know, inspiration gets you to a point where you sit up and say, oh, well, maybe I can be a part of the solution. And we don't talk about the issue. We talk about how they are going to feel good they're going to feel fulfilled. It's about them and, and, you know, getting them across the line. Because, you know, the thing, this is the thing, Michael, is when people get a taste of being a volunteer, being a part of a process that helps to make the world a better place, the endorphins go off in their mind. Yeah. It, all of a sudden, the good feelings are there. The fulfillment is there. The, the missing piece is there. I'm just trying to get them to do one thing, to get them into that space, and then that will take over. It really does feel good to be a part of helping to make the world a better place. And so we got to go through a, a particular process. Number one is to get people to find out what it is their issue is. Number two, get them to accept responsibility. We all breathe the air, drink the water, use the facilities, use the road. You know, we, we're part of this. We have to have some shared responsibility. Third is to surrender to the fact I'm not going to let the voices talk me out of it. I'm just going to do it. You know, Nike got it right when they just said, just do it. You know, because it's a great phase. It's a call to action. And lastly, just try to do something. And if it's just learning about something and teaching others, or sending articles to others, that's something. You know, if it's uh, volunteering, and a lot of volunteering takes place at home now. You don't even have to go to the office or making donations or contributions. to all, all of those things are heroic. All of those things add up. All of those are part of the one in 10 million people doing things. I want to tell this story again because you talked about endorphins and I'll throw dopamine in there as well. When I was 25 years old or 26 years old, I started making a decent amount of money and I flew back to New York to go out to, I mean, for New Year's Eve, but I was there for a few days before and a few days after and I went to dinner with like 12 or 13 of my friends. Really fancy restaurant for a bunch of kids who were 26 years old. Chinese food. I remember it like it was yesterday and it was cold, right? Because it was December in New York. And I remember walking out of the restaurant, we'd ordered way too much food because that's what we did. And I, ca I took that food home. I was like, oh, just I'm in the hotel, I'll eat this tomorrow morning. And I remember coming out of the restaurant with my girlfriend at the time, and there was a homeless guy in New York, and this must have been 1991, so a long time ago. And I think this is what changed my perspective. The dude was freezing and he was hungry and you could see it. Yeah. 
And I looked at my girlfriend getting into the taxi and I looked at the guy and I was like, never mind. I took the bag and I walked over. I was scared, right? Because back then, first of all, I was young and the guy looked scary. Yeah. But I just said, screw it. And I walked over to him and I gave him that bag of food and he smiled. Do you know what I mean? So like this scary, really scary persona was just so happy to have some sustenance. That's when my view on this food and hunger thing changed. Well, I'm going to continue your story. And when I was at NYU, one of our assignments was to go out in the street and beg, okay, to understand invisibility. So I went out and I did it for the first time and I managed to get a whole bunch of money and I went back to my professor and I said, well, you know, people gave me money freely. What's the problem here? And he said, well, explain to me how you did it. And I walked up to him and I looked him right in the eyes and I said, will you give me money? Well, I'm a big guy. You know, they gave me money because they were afraid I was going to rob them. <laughs> so he said, you did it all wrong. You need to put your eyes down. You need to be submissive. When I did that, all of a sudden I understood what invisibility was. Yeah. They didn't see me. Right. They didn't recognize me. They walked around me. You know, everything they could to kind of acknowledge the fact that my existence didn't, didn't matter. Right. It was such an important message. Uh, or a uh, lesson for me, because I recognized what these homeless people, the same person that you gave that food to, everyone walks by yeah, and he was invisible. that person. That person is not a person. They are just a thing on the street. Yeah. And again, it's not about bragging. It's about an event that happened to me that changed my perception. But also, remember, that was 26. That was 30 years ago. But it changed the way I perceived food and sustenance, and I still do it. And to be fair... I'm also less afraid. You know, remember, <laughs> you, you said earlier, and I mentioned it once, and I'll mention it again. You're like, I can't get annoyed because I care too much about the things that I care about. And that's something that I care deeply about. And I'm not afraid because I don't really care. And I always ask myself, like, what's my downside? How can somebody who's hungry and frail hurt? You know, my, my next book is titled, I Care So Much That I Don't Care At All. And we talked about this and it's what you just mentioned. But let me let me talk a little bit about that. I care so much about wanting to have a fulfilled life, to do the right thing, to reach the full potential of what I can be, that I don't care what people think about me. I don't care about whether or not I'm doing things that are according to their norms. I do things based on what I think needs to be done. Right. And I and I think there are so many people who are distracted with life. I have two fears in life. One of them was public speaking and I got over that. But the second one is waking up one day and realizing I lived my life all wrong. It was based on a Tolstoy story, the death of Ivan Ilyich, where this guy followed, you know, what conventional society said life was supposed to be, did all the right things. But then as he's dying at the, because he has an accident, uh, everyone, uh, you know, he looks back in his life and realizes he did everything wrong. He didn't get the, he wanted to be an artist. He wanted to change the world, all those kind of things. You know, a lot of people wake up, they're 55 years old. They look around, they say, oh my gosh, I didn't do anything for the world. I don't hate my job. My family doesn't get along with me. We have to take stock of where we are in our life. And one of the things that adds value to our life is to be a part of a community, be a part of the solution, be a part of helping the world to be a better place. It's such a simple message, but a lot of people don't get it. If the ones that do, they see the change. It's like that aha moment, you know? For you to have given food to that person was only not only an aha moment for you, it was for that person as well. You know, that there are people who care. There is perhaps a little bit of hope in the world. For those people that have been homeless, which 
I have been. And for those people that have been foodless, which I know you don't believe, but I have been as well. When you come out of it, it's this weird feeling of there have been a bunch of people that have helped you out along the way. And they didn't have to, right? But they were, in fact, heroic. And I think that's one of the reasons why this resonates me is because I've been on both sides of this table. Yeah. And it's just fat. The feeling you have when somebody helps you out is weird. Yeah. But it, it also not encourages you, but it kind of forces you to know that, like, helping somebody out, even at a small scale, is really important. And I don't remember where I heard this, but it was said to me very early in life, if you can change one person's life, you can change a generation. And I think it's important for people to understand this, is that you don't have to go out and start a gigantic organization, but you do have to go out and participate in the world like it means something to you. Well, we may have talked about this the last time we talked. The the starfish parable, did we talk about that last time? I don't think so. Okay, so in our world of modern slavery, there's 40 million people. We're helping 108,000 at 0.2%. A lot of people say, well, how do you prevent yourself from being burnt out when you look at that? It feels like you're having no impact at all. So we subscribe to a parable, very well-known parable. Let me describe it. Uh, Father and son walking down a 10-kilometer beach. You know, they... And every few feet, the father reaches down and takes a starfish that's been beached, throws it in the water. A few feet later, sees another one, throws it in the water, does this for about 10 minutes. The child looks at the father and says, Dad, this beach is 10 kilometers long. You can't possibly save all those starfish. What difference does it make? Father looks at the son and says, makes all the difference to the starfish that gets into the water. The point is one individual at a time, one person at a time one animal at a time, one tree at a time, you know, basically finding a way to really just be a part of something more than ourselves. You know, I've always been a service provider, always been a volunteer, and it's always been a part of my life that if I have my personal life and my professional life and everything else, I should also give something back. You know, and just, uh, you know, metaphor for this was uh, I had mentors when I was young. For whatever reason, they, they felt like they were worth, they felt there was enough worth in, you know, investing in me. And they would all say the same things, that if I mentor you, when you get to where I am, you have to mentor others. That's what you pass along. And that's what we should be doing with the earth. And, you know, for people or animals or the planet or stuff, we need to leave it better than, than we got it. And there are many, many things that we can do in a small scale. And again, it's in the numbers. 10 million people do this. That's going to have a significant impact. I, want, I don't want to take up more of your time. I love having these conversations with you. We have to keep this going. The last thing I'll ask you is how can people help the Mekong Club continue to make a difference? Well, we do talks. Corporate Social Responsibility Offices bring us in, you know, promote the book. And after the talks, I counsel people on, okay, well, you are motivated to make the change now. Let's sit down and talk about, you know, which issue do you feel like you want to do? And we just, we do it as a group. Right. There's 20 people in a room and they go around and the group approach is important because it gives a certain element of peer pressureness, yeah. gets people to step up and be a part of things and so forth. A, a lot of what we're really just trying to do is to find ways of getting more and more people to accept the basic message that we all need to do something. 
And even if it's just a few things in a year, do a few things, but do something. Maybe a little bit more next year, a little bit more next year, and get other people to do it. It comes down to the math. 10 million people doing small, compassionate, heroic gestures, it adds up, and the world would be a better place, especially post-COVID, because a lot of these issues are getting worse, not better. Okay, Matt, I'm going to let you go. Matt Friedman, The Macon Club. People can reach you at matt.friedman at themaconclub.org. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for doing this again today, Matt. Thanks, Michael. Great talking to you.